Well, you could always get a job at um, Aldi, I'm sure, in, in Belgium. Mate. <laughs> I don't speak good enough French or Dutch to get it. Ah, That's the thing. Mm. Yeah. Have you considered following Boris Johnson's footsteps and becoming EU correspondent to some <laughs> terrible tabloid while you're living in Belgium? <laughs> well, come on, use your imagination. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Uh, you're listening to Dole Capital. My name's Jacob. And my name's Ben. And on today's show, we're going to be talking to uh, an old uh, long-term friend of the show uh, who's currently overseas, the uh, former ACT Labor uh, Secretary of the ACT branch of the Australian Labor Party, uh, Mr. Matthew Byrne. Uh, Matthew's an interesting guy. We're going to have a great old chat about the Labor leaks in the UK, uh, about party democracy. It's an ongoing theme for us, I think. Uh, it's something we do care about at Dole Capital because it is fundamental to the politics that we believe in, which is uh, people having a more democratic say of the world in which they live. Uh, Matt, in terms of background, Matthew Byrne, uh, he had an amazing role in the 2016 uh, ACT government elections where he was the party secretary who uh, came up with a strategy and the plan which saw um, the Labor government returned. Uh, despite overwhelming opposition and um, incredible amounts of funding from the establishment, um, from the mainstream, so-called mainstream media, uh, from all the you know supposed uh, experts and all the rest of it, that Labor was going to go, uh, and they won, and they won off the back of a strategy that was um, very much targeted at um, an incredible amount of door knocking, something like over. Um, what was it, 450-odd thousand door knocks um, conversations were recorded during that election campaign. Pretty impressive by anyone's measure in terms of um, running these things. And the other part of the legacy that Matt's left is a far more democratic uh, party structure in the ACT. Uh, in particular, the, the way in which the organisations managed to um, get a, a subscription fee, people pay them monthly, which is, which is you know, shouldn't see a big, big deal, but it was for Labor. But open the doors, and ACT Labor has now one member um, per 100 electors in the ACT. So literally, we could have two members go and door knock a couple of streets, and we would be sorted. That <laughs> 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 would be um, one of those things there. But that's obviously a lot more complicated than that. So uh, Matt's an interesting guy, and we hope to have him on again. But in this show, um, I hope you enjoy our chat about talking about things that were going on in the UK uh, and other things going on around the world. But um, Stay with us at Dole Capital for that. Enjoy the show. And we're at a moment where sort of all, all contradictions are made. So I find it for the crisis of contemporary capitalism. This week in class politics. Classic fucking boomer. Old new left. Maintaining the relations of neoliberalism. Dole Capital. Dole Capital. Dole Capital. Dole Capital. Dole International, but we're from cameras. Shall we start? Um, I'll start by talking about um, what we've been doing. So uh, in my capacity as the co-field organiser on uh, Tim Dobson's ACC election campaign for Murrumbidgee, uh, this week we started phone banking, remote phone banking. Um, obviously, uh, as a result of the restriction, restrictions imposed in Australia around um, social gatherings uh, and such, ACT Labor's put restrictions on face-to-face uh, voter contact. So we began uh, distributed phone banks, which has been really interesting. Um, uh, one thing I think the greatest resource that Tim's campaign has going for it is this like great uh, enthusiasm of 
um, volunteers and a good number of people who are really dedicated to Tim's project and fighting for creating more and more space for democratic socialists in, in the ACT Labor Party. And so our goal was always to maximise the amount of direct voter contact we were doing. Um, and we've done some great door knocks in the south of Canberra, um, speaking to people, um, following on from the example that's been set by Bernie Sanders' uh, election camp, presidential election campaign and momentum in the UK. Um, and now all of a sudden we found ourselves stuck at home, can't go and talk to people. So um, we found that the change has been quite interesting. Um, the ability to um, create rapport with an elector when you speak to them is, if not reduced, then like significantly changed. Like, I think I like totally underestimated the um, importance of eye contact and body language in sort of setting someone at ease or kind of disarming them with a bit of humour. Um, and there's also the fact that I think people greet uh, an unexpected knock at the door very differently to an unexpected phone call at, you know, 6.30, you know, while they're sort of getting ready for dinner. And there's a bit of hostility, not hostility, but um, sort of standoffishness that has to be overcome when you are doing, you know, um, phone banks in general, where usually maybe the solidarity of being in a room with a bunch of people all making phone calls and all, you know, getting told to fuck off at the same time um, would help you overcome. In this case, you've got a bunch of people sitting in their bedrooms or lounge rooms um, making calls on their own from their laptops or their phones. And um, it's been interesting. Yeah, that's, that's really tough. Yeah, to see how, you know, how your volunteers seek ways to sort of like create a sense of solidarity and collectivity while they're trying to do that stuff, even though they're all separate. What have you got, Ben? Well, in terms of look, like locally, so I think what you're highlighting there, it's obviously really difficult at the moment in terms of ways to go and um, be engaged and involved there. I, I, I'm, I'm impressed that you've been able to press on with um, doing some, getting people to do some phone banking. I mean, that's incredible considering the current context. I was also quite, um, one of the things I found, I reached out when was like last week, and I spoke. We spoke about this probably about three or four weeks ago, um, wondering what would happen with meetings, and uh, concerned about engagement and accountability of our representatives. And it, it was interesting. Um, I put out the the feelers of my sub branch about, hey, we're going to have a meeting, and I was like, yeah, let's go. Um, but we, we've had, had this sort of form of words come back, which sort of says that we can't actually have a, a meeting that would decide anything, can't move motions that can be binding or it has to be an informal thing. Or this sort of stuff. And it was interesting that this not isn't necessarily coming um, just advice from the ACT party office, but it's, it's something that the result of the national executive making a decision some time ago about shutting down meetings and the like. And I, I think, um, Given they're already there's going to be moves by May. There's going to be some more moves for um, you know children going back to school, things like that. By May, it looks like in Australia, um, some of this other stuff about well, if we're going to an online world, surely no matter how people have historically gone and met, working people have often gone and met in different locations, cafes or whatever to have a meeting. I'm sure we can have a meeting online. Uh, and disgusting. It's, it's all fine to discuss, but you can't pass a motion. So it's like, well, this is a bit weird because it's about 
um, being able to provide a space for people to not just meet with their together and raise their concerns to their their representatives. That's really quite simple. So, not particularly happy with that, but I was I was quite heartened to see an advice come out from the party officer to saying, oh yes, if you want to have sub branch meetings, you can do so, but you got to contact us first, which was what they did. So that was that was good. That was good. I, I think. Um, uh, yeah, that's that's something positive there. But I think it goes back to uh, Matt wrote something. We mentioned this, Matt, in a little while ago. We were talking about you um, had a piece that went into the Left magazine in New South Wales called um, Challenge Magazine, which highlighted a whole lot of concerns about uh, one of the things that we should be concerned about as socialists and, and anyone uh, broadly in the Left is uh, trying to ensure that there is scrutiny uh, around... Uh, a number of the sort of the authoritarian um, decisions that have been made around how we meet and discuss and talk and all the like. But do some phone banking involved, getting back your camp, you know, candidate, find ways to be involved via whatever forum you can. Maybe there's this, the social media stuff, but it is really quite depressing. But at least we're getting some shoots of, of being and finding avenues for what people to do things locally other than reading articles and raging on Facebook. We, talk, we spoke about. Um seeing um, Sally McManus um, asking ACTU members uh, to join Twitter. That was something that they could do to help, uh, you know, campaign against the, you know, the government, federal government's response to coronavirus. It's like, join Twitter. That's, that's the thing you can do because, I don't know, why? Because the people who are administering these peak bodies, like, uh, understand politics in these terms through social media and um, like news cycles, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, it's kind of depressing. I think with any form of campaigning tactic, we've always got to stick to the basic principles of good campaigning, right? Like it's all about building relationships um, so that you can build trust with um, the elector or whoever it is you're, you're trying to convince uh, to vote for you or to support your your policy. Um, so if you have that as the basis of your of your activity, then um, you know you, you can you've got a solid grounding in which to work from. So I think it's great that you guys are doing uh, phone banking. Um, I know also that there's a lot of work going on in kind of mutual aid uh, and community type of activities, um, which again are difficult to do logistically because you've got to be um, you've got to have social distancing and all that kind of stuff. But anything that builds a connection um, between uh, the party, the candidate members and uh, the community is, is something that, that I think we should all be focusing on. This is not an easy time to be doing that, obviously, because I think, as you said previously, Jacob, you know, um, having that eye-to-eye or face-to-face contact is, is, we know, is the most powerful thing that, that works. So... Um, having trying to find new ways of doing that is 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 crucial in order to be successful if this thing is going to continue. Um, and certainly here in Belgium, uh, the lockdown is 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 going to be in place until at the very earliest the third of May. Um, and you know we're not expecting um, things to all of a sudden change from then. Um, so we've got quite a while of this to go. Um, certainly here in Europe, um, and I think probably in Australia as well. Um, I think going to Ben's point about accountability um, and transparency, I think it's it's obviously governments have to do what they have to do to to um, 
help save lives and keep people healthy um, and protect them from the virus. But I think it's crucial that we, um, on the left, um, don't just hand over those rights without any kind of um, guarantees or or any sense of transparency. Um, I think it was good that, that Labor and the, the crossbench federally agreed to set up a an ongoing Senate committee um, with broad ranging powers to um, hold some accountability over the public service and the federal government as they implement um, measures uh, to fight uh, coronavirus. Um, I think it's good the ACT government has done the same as well. But they're basically the, the minimum, I think. Um, I think it's, it's, I am a bit concerned there hasn't been much discussion about um, kind of timelines or limits on some of these restrictive measures. Um, and I think it's important that that's kind of where the conversation starts to head from a, um, you know, from a left point of view. Um, I think we need to be asking those questions of our, of our elected representatives. Um, what's the plan? Um, if you have uh, changed laws um, which give the police and other security agencies greater power um, in coercing or moving people on, then uh, what's the sunset clause for them? Um, and how mm. do you intend on on writing them back when they're no longer necessary? Um, so yeah, I think that's 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 where we should be heading. Um, but I, I go back to the, the the point about you know again, it's in terms of campaigning and the party. It's all about maintaining and building relationships. Um, and I think if we can focus on that, then. Um, you'll be in a good place um, when you can come out of this and go back to more traditional and more effective forms of campaigning. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, so another, another um, kind of staying on the subject of the Australian government's response during the coronavirus crisis here in the Antipodes, today Queensland, it was announced the Queensland government is offering $200 million to Virgin Australia to keep it afloat. They have not asked for equity exchange is not a purchase. It is a bailout. Uh, interested to hear your guys' thoughts on this. Well, I've only had just seen the article myself um, before we went, um, before we jumped onto this this chat. So, um, you know, I, I don't really have a lot to say about it apart from I think it's symptomatic of the state of the left in Australia that um, there isn't that conversation going on. That I think it's it's kind of concerning that we that the the discourse on um, the economic response to um, the coronavirus crisis has gone to a um, debt and deficit discussion and aimed at how we pay back the debt. Um, that the loudest voices are about um, the far right saying we need to we need to end the lockdown in order to get the economy going again. Sorry, Grandma, but you have to die. But um, also, the um, you're all going to have to take a pay cut in order to to pay back the debt. Um, that coupled with kind of corporatist um, bailing out of, of companies who are failing, um, mm. you know, that's I think as much uh, discussion is happening in Europe um, on on the economy, um, especially in the United Kingdom. There's a much more broader debate I think going on about what are the correct economic responses to to this and that i think is because they have a more viable left um that is more present in the mainstream uh economic debate which we don't really have um in australia um i think we have some good progressive voices um who were very strong early which is why we ended up with the job keeper um program as limited as it is when you have a liberal government um implementing these policies but um 
we're not there when it comes to having discussions about, you know, should we use this as an opportunity to um, to broaden democratic, um, you know, what are the democratic payoffs for the public in buying equity or putting taxpayers' dollars into companies like this? You know, should yeah, we enter into a shared equity scheme yeah. like like was proposed by UK Labor or, or was implemented by um, the Swedish in the 1970s? You know, like those are those are topics that aren't aren't really being discussed at the moment. Yeah, look, I mean, I, I think um, like a whole lot of industries at the moment, there should just should be broad-reaching nationalisation going on. Or, or if we're talking about equity income, okay, that's another thing. What's what's disturbing this stuff for the Queensland government just seems to be, let's prop up a company uh, that's run for profit with taxpayers' money, i.e. we know who pays tax. It's not the big end of town. It's not the rich. Sorry, it's not the, not the poor um, who are... You know, going to benefit from this. It's the you know the the well off. Um, so taxpayers are being asked to bail out something there. It's just it just doesn't sound right. But there is there's an economic argument that's been around for a while that like well, if Virgin is going to fail, and as look as much as I love having my velocity points, um, uh, Qantas is one. You need you need they need to be one airline at the very least. <laughs> like, you just take over one, which is what they've been like. Italy, they 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 nationalised their their national airline, and that's happened in other countries where they've just gone, look, you know, we're just going to have to nationalise the thing. So it's pretty extreme stuff, but we have had seen um, pretty amazing amounts of money just thrown in um, uh, into industries that probably don't need the the financial support. So um, yeah, I, I guess the wrap wrap this sort of wrap this sort of up around there. I guess the starting point for people on the left or socialists or like is to look at um, there should be a questioning about well what's the bang for buck uh, for ordinary folk and surely if if we want to actually if the end game is to keep people in jobs and to have a, a mechanism to um, uh, deliver services well just propping things up for the private sector is, is not really going to be um, sustainable in the, in the the short term, um, we need you know a short term and then medium plan, and that may mean that they need to seriously look at that. But like Matt was saying, um, sadly, the voices that that actually have a collective memory uh, that are using a collective memory of of how to deal with crises is uh, very few and far between uh, in terms of the people currently running the the labour movement, um, let alone um, the voices inside the you know the, the parliamentary Labour Party. So. Uh, it's on people in, in the grassroots to get out there and make those arguments about, look, you know, the, the rich really need to pay for this crisis. It shouldn't be ordinary folk. Um, would be the pretty simple, slogan, you know, you know, make the rich pay is a pretty simple slogan, but it really does encompass um, all these very complex things that are going to happen because we know that they will be doing everything they can to shift the financial burden and, and cost and, and all the horrible stuff onto those that can least afford it. And we're already seeing that, that now. Um, the Fair Work um, uh, legislation, they're talking about changing the laws so that an employer can um, make an offer, pay offer, and only give you one day to consider it. Like, like things like this are absolutely, uh, thoroughly anti-democratic and thoroughly um, all in, in favour of the long-term situation for the employees in the long term. Mm. So the JobKeeper program, right, you both have mentioned that now. Um, my understanding of this is that while 
a large section of the labor force in Australia, as everywhere else, is unable to do productive work. The main, and that's not really changed by the um, facade that you put across a social wage program. The, so the main function of this JobKeeper program, which for those who are maybe listening internationally or not familiar, is a wage subsidy program whereby uh, the wages of workers, rather than being paid through the welfare system, are being administered by employers by the tax system. So it's a wage subsidy being paid to employers by the Australian Tax Office um, so that they can continue to pay their employees and keep them on the books. But the main function of this is really to deflate the official unemployment statistic. And I mean, like um, Josh Frydenberg kind of said this pretty explicitly that like, you know, if they weren't doing this um, dual um, social wage programs, uh, that unemployment will have, you know, would have exceeded 15% by this point. Well, 15% uh, of the labor force is being, un is not being utilized. You know? So for the um, intents and purposes of the metric as you know, in the spirit of the metric, as we might think, knowing how many people are actually not working might be a good thing. Uh, people who are, you know, of working capacity aren't working. Instead, we've got this two tiered social welfare system operating, which also maintains the distinction between, you know, we're, uh, deserving and undeserving unemployed, which is an important ideological piece of ideological maintenance that needs to be done. And I suppose like there's like a weak argument that you can make, right? That um, to keep people nominally on the books at work uh, will go some way to aiding the recovery. But at least anecdotally, I can say people I know who have lost their jobs and have gone on to new start expect to go back to work. Uh, and the only difference between themselves and me, I'm, in the, I'm on the job keeper payment. The difference is that my employer had enough liquidity to um, keep paying wages uh, until the subsidy kicked in and theirs didn't. I mean, it's an arbitrary distinction really between mm -hmm. people who have had to go on to new start and people who are getting this job keeper payment. Yep. Um, so I guess what I'm getting at is uh, asking how seriously should we take it when people are giving this program a clap as, you know, some kind of sudden shift towards socialism. My feeling is that um, this is really, you know, uh, a last ditch effort at maintaining the relations of neoliberalism uh, in a sort of like frozen state until such a time that they can be resumed. Yeah, that's a good point. Matt, you got any thoughts on that? Uh, look, I, obviously, the, the plans are, are all about saving capitalism um, and, you know, broadly and, and saving jobs and, and making sure that there is a viable economy um, in, in place when, um, uh, you know, people can go back to some kind of normalcy um, whenever that, that's able to occur. You know, obviously, the, the main aim of, of, um, of, um, of, um, of saving jobs is something that we should uh, support. Um, obviously, you know that's that's a, a fundamental role of, of the state and the government. You know, we shouldn't we shouldn't um, we shouldn't criticise that at all. Um, and this is a, a way of doing it. Uh, the model that's being used is not too dissimilar to one that um, is is used similarly across uh, countries in Europe. Uh, but I think for me, the the thing that is clear about the policy is that it was a rush piece of policy that was negotiated clearly by unions um, 
and, and the business sector with, with the Labor and Liberal parties in a very short amount of time. Uh, and this is what happens when you, when you have to rush uh, policies through, um, you know, through development into implementation is, is um, what looks like a, an efficient um, and an easy way of getting uh, money to people who need it quickly um, and, and keeping businesses afloat um, actually has some, some problems. You know, I know anecdotally through family that um, who are involved in some um, small and medium businesses that uh, some businesses are really struggling to, to do it because they don't have any liquidity. They have any revenue coming in because they, they can't mm. operate as a business, which means... Um, they're basically having to lay off their staff, which has implications about whether their staff are then eligible for JobKeeper or not. So um, this is the problem we're in when you want to rush things through and then when you want to suspend Parliament. is, um, is It's very hard then to correct uh, mistakes um, and make sure that the policy is then um, tweaked to um, ensure that it is delivered um, more effectively than what it, than what it probably is now. Um, to your broader point about... Um, is this the step to, to, to socialism? No, it's not, not at all. And I think this, I think this, it's a classic kind of liberal media view of, of um, the state is involved in, in the economy, therefore it's socialism. Well, that's obviously not true at all. Um, this is all about um, bailing out capitalism. Um, and in the short term, um, we should all be supporting measures that, that do support uh, keeping jobs and keeping people employed. Um, but you know, our friends, uh, our opponents across uh, the other side of politics are, are not letting this crisis go without um, trying to um, get some stuff through they wouldn't have before. And I think this is why, um, back to my original point about the need for greater transparency and accountability in this period, because you know, the IR changes, environmental changes, um, and the like that are going on in uh, state and federal parliaments is um, something that you know, isn't getting the attention that it needs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's spot on. And I know we're going to move on to something else, uh, Jacob and Matt, uh, very shortly. But the liberal authoritarianism is, is a term Matt threw at me the other day. <laughs> and I, I think it's actually, for socialists, I think that's what we need to con actually come to grips with. Um, we are living under a liberal authoritarianism at a, at a federal and a... Uh, local level in this country, uh, in Australia. And then um, I'm not sure, it's probably happening to different degrees elsewhere. Uh, Neoliberal ec economies have gone into basically a panic mode to try to save their economies. And what they've been forced to do is to one hand take authoritarian means of using the state to, on the one hand, the, the health issues and that sort, of, that sort of stuff. We're not dealing with that. We're not gonna talk about that, but the authoritarian bit also goes into in terms of how the economy is run but the liberal bit in terms of like on the one hand there is some some degree of talking about oh yes we've all got a band together and we do care um but what we know that the real the real practice is there's actually to try to hibernate things until and in the vain hope that life will get back to, to normal again um without the scrutiny going on and we've had no idea of a time um uh, what do you call it, signposts for when things are going to change with these economic relations or laws or without any um, uh, time of expiry for the, the laws that have been put in for um, that are really corral our civil liberties or our, even our ability to organise. 
um, we are living in a pretty um, scary time right now. So it's really important, even the most simple thing is, if you're in the party, make sure you go get to a sub-branch meeting and ask them questions of your, of your representatives. I'm actually horrified that, you know, we know, we know we, we know people in our local party who are having to be representatives in our local government. But the fact that they're off there, you know, who are they talking to? What, you know, people on Facebook, like uh, senior bureaucrats and the education directorate or the health directorate or, you know, they're not engaging with, with members. Now, I've seen efforts for like, oh, well, you know, they've been running virtual um, board game nights. That's nice. But are we actually having conversations about what's going on? Or we've got, so I've seen MPs that I want to have chats with people about what's going on, but that's not engagement in terms of scrutiny or in terms of actually giving your members the opportunity to ask the questions as well as actually hold our representatives to account. So um, they're practical things that we can get involved with now. Now, speaking of the membership being, um, having power over its representatives, um, we've, we were, last week we were talking about the um, situation with the Greens and the extraordinary intervention of Milne, Bob Brown and uh, uh, Dean Natale, all former leaders of the parliamentary um, party for the Greens, uh, their intervention there um, steadfastly opposing the idea of one member, one vote for determining their national leader, something that Labor federally had agonised around and came up with a pretty um, you know, uh, farce of a compromise, the 50-50. We, we now have the incredible spectacle of what, something that's just blowing up in the UK. And I know you had something more to, to introduce this topic on, it's uh, Jacob, and I know Matt's got some thoughts on it as well. And it is something that's got a lot of implications for both people, well, for progressive and for, for socialist people around, around the world, I think, uh, who actually want to see parties that are accountable, um, mm. that members, members actually, you know, you join a party to have a say you expect that the people you elect positions to have integrity to carry through the, the, the decisions democratically decided by the membership, you know? Right. That's, Look, but anyway. Uh, an absolute bombshell rocked the UK Labor Party on the Easter weekend. A leaked report produced during the last months of Jeremy Corbyn's leadership purports to show a culture of insularity, factionalism, racism and misogyny at the tippy top of the party's executive prior to and during the 2017 general election. The report reveals what many had already suspected, namely that Blairite elites within the party have for years been more concerned with undermining Corbyn's leadership than they have been with furthering the political goals and material interests of the party's membership. On the subject of material interests, we find high-level party officials discussing postponing resignations and slow-walking campaign work in anticipation of more lucrative severance benefits. On the subject of, of political goals, we find that the party's general secretary its executive director and its director of governance, membership and party services, as well as other officials of equally high standing, were outwardly lamenting the party's electoral victories and sharing violent fantasies about the membership that had won them. Above all, the chat logs contained in, contained in the report reveal a deep-seated hostility towards the party's left and any MPs or staffers associated with Corbyn's rise. The report reveals also that these staffers were involved in the secret misappropriation of party resources, operating a clandestine parallel campaign office, and funneling much-needed campaign funds to right-wing MPs defending safe seats. The tragedy of this is that had Labor won around 2,700 additional votes in strategically key seats, they may have had a chance at forming government in 2017. The context of the leak is this. 
the UK Labor Party is being investigated by the Equality and Human Rights Commission over the alleged mishandling of anti-Semitism complaints. As we're all aware by now, the smear which alleged Jeremy Corbyn's support for, or at least indifference to, supposedly rampant anti-Semitism within the Labor Party, came to dominate the UK media cycle at several points during the 2019 general election. Boris Johnson benefited directly from this, capitalising on it in the final days of the campaign with a series of photo ops uh, in Orthodox Jewish communities. The leaked report appears to have been intended as an appendix to the Labor Party's own submission to the EHRC. It shows that while Jeremy Corbyn's office was pressing the party's governance and legal unit for information and updates regarding complaints about anti-Semitic racism, the people responsible for handling those complaints were consumed with the ideological purging of leftists from the party. Or, as the director of the governance and legal unit, John Stolliday, put it, truncheons out, lads, let's knock some trots. So, that's basically the gist. Uh, I believe the party's new leadership team, Keir Starmer and Angela Rayner, have uh, announced that an inquiry into the report and its leaking, in quotes, uh, is to be launched. Uh, and I know that Ian McNichol, who was general secretary of the party at the time, uh, who is heavily you know, implicated in all of the allegations of the report, uh, has stepped down pending that investigation. Um, ben, let's start with your thoughts. <laughs> uh, look, my, the, the, the shorthand for me is my initial, when, I, when, it, when it first dropped, was like, oh, I'm not surprised. And that was just me reading a headline, right? It was like, oh, well, we knew that. We, we knew that uh, sections of the right, um, the, the opportunist sort of, you know, people lacking integrity in, in that party, uh, and particularly and in, in sadly in key positions of the party's um, infrastructure uh, had been behaving appallingly for, for some time. And, um, but when when I, when I actually sat down and you know took the time to read um, Aaron Bastani's piece in the Vara Media, uh, it is absolutely gobsmacking. And yeah, they were talking about it. there's material there that you go and keep banging on for for, for ages. Like it's heaps heaps of material in there, and then I know they're taking advantage of that. Um, the but when you really boil it down, the key thing is we've got a political culture where. Um, certain individuals uh, have uh, around, organised around uh, factions. And I don't think factions are a bad thing. They're only a bad thing if there is an accountability going on. And if there's not accountability in terms of a, a party or as hand in hand with a culture that is open, you're going to get the kind of crazy um, corruption and horrible behavior that they are doing towards their, their well, people in their own organization but the absolute contempt for their membership has been that's quite incredible but actively working to destroy the chances of the organization that you're supposedly working for and getting paid a lot of money to do so is gobsmacking stuff uh, for people in australia be the equivalent of the people running the national ALP, like all of them being involved in, you, you can almost like, you know, you, in a conspiracy, but it's not a conspiracy. They, <laughs> they, were, they were doing it. They were spending, you know, serious amounts of money on setting up a um, financing uh, candidates that they wanted to ensure that got in 
not financing uh, candidates in marginal seats that where they could have had a chance of winning, um, doing everything they could to ensure that um, selection panels were, you know, stacked with their people. Um, all sorts of really quite incredible stuff. Um, things that, uh, you know, here would be, you just find it, I mean, they're not to say that when a Labor in, the, in, a, in Australia's got all sorts of problems um, as, a, as a federal um, federation of, of, of parties, but uh, this stuff's just um, almost beyond the pale to sort of comprehend. Uh, and I think it'll take some time for um, something to come out of it. I'm just hoping that something positive will come out of this and hopefully the people who um, were really disheartened by uh, the loss under Corbyn recently, uh, that they think again. It's very clear, old No and all these other people there, uh, the former director, that they didn't want a mass party. They didn't want the, the, the membership to have a real democratic say about how it was being run. They want people to leave. And it's exactly the same sort of politics we see in Australia where you say you've got New South Wales branch. Um, don't even, they won't even let you know where your sub-branch meets, you know. They won't even publicise it on the website. So that that's the parallels there. It's the same kind of um, sort of, that's where you end up if you let that behaviour continue, is mm. you end up with what's happening in the UK right now. So it's really important that people stay in it because there is a platform there to actually change things if you get involved in it. Um, mm. Otherwise, you're just screaming at um, people going by. Like, there is an opportunity to connect with people right now. Um, that That's there in UK Labor. It's also there in... in um, Labor in the ACT or, or elsewhere. Mm. All right. I want to come to you in a second, Matt, on that. But uh, before we do that, uh, Ben, you mentioned uh, that what really seems to be under threat is the massive membership surge that was inspired by Jeremy Corbyn's leadership. Apparently, the Labor Party is reported to have lost 3,000 members since the Easter weekend. And this we're recording is on the 18th of April. Uh, that's pretty substantial. And one of the people who is making the pitch to those members that they should leave the party and uh, try their electoral fortunes elsewhere is this man, George Galloway, everyone's favourite loud Scottish man in a large hat. He is the uh, founder of the great... Is it the Workers' Party of Great Britain? British Workers' Party? Sorry, George. And he's got his own show on RT. uh, And here he is. The leaked Labour report is devastating confirmation of a four and a half year conspiracy against Jeremy Corbyn. Though you won't know about it unless you watch and read RT and follow social media. All those political journalists and broadcasters who throughout the entire period of Jeremy Corbyn's leadership crawled incessantly through the entrails of internal Labour politics have completely ignored a report which seems to establish the biggest scandal in the Labour Party's more than 100 year history. The report reveals that at the most senior levels in the Labour Party's headquarters, a conspiracy was afoot right from day one. A conspiracy to undermine Corbyn's leadership and ultimately to throw the general election of 2017, when Corbyn came less than 3,000 votes away from forming Britain's first ever socialist government. All right, we can leave 
George right there, yeah. I think. Um, but so the reason I wanted to play that clip from George Galloway, and he's not really, uh, you know, that's his sort of public-facing IT show. Yeah. Um, but what George Galloway is really doing is kind of mounting this, I suppose, opportunistic pitch to the left wing of the Labor Party uh, to jump ship and join him in the Workers' Party of Great Britain. Um, Matt, should left-wing members of the Labor Party be despairing? Is the party lost to them? Should they be jumping ship and joining George Galloway? No, I think I think um, you would be crazy to want to hang out with a fringe-dwelling crank like George Galloway um, instead of being involved in the Labor Party, um, which is the only viable political vehicle for parliamentary socialism in the United Kingdom. Um, what I think this report shows is a is a massive seems to show um, in the alleged uh, allegations made in the report is a massive failure of governance inside the party, a lack of transparency and accountability at the very top of the of the party bureaucracy. Um, I think there are lots of questions to be asked about the NEC at the time, which is the National Executive Committee of the of the Labor Party. Um, what briefings were they getting from um, these officials? Uh, what questions were they pro? Uh, were they asking? What powers did they have to actually make sure that when they were receiving um, complaints or, or reports about the lack of action being taken, could they use to actually get into the office and see what's going on? It does seem quite strange to me that um, the elected office bearers of the party seemed unable to um, to get into the guts of the of the party bureaucracy and see what was going on. Um, the, the the left um, won, I think they they won um, control of the NEC um, in in 2017. I think I could be wrong on that um, or 2018. Um, so it was you know a couple of years into the into Corbyn's leadership that the left actually managed to win the NEC. Um, and, and, and change the party. It's Jenny Formby became general secretary. But in that in that early period, um, what was going on? Um, it, it just strikes me um, as I, I'd love to know, uh, and I don't know yeah. if we'll ever know um, that. Um, but I would love to know what was going on there uh, that, that allowed this to happen. Um, that allowed these these um, these officials. Um, to basically run their own show um, with no accountability to the rest of the party. Um, that just strikes me as very, very strange. I think, I think the thing about what people should remember about George Galloway, um, while he's, he's, he's like a UK version of an old new left boomer that's found himself a niche thing as a shock jock on, uh, you know, so it's a shock jock Russian radio. state television. Yeah, yeah. Look, I, look, I've got a soft spot for, for George over things that he's done historically in the past. Um, he, he has been a person that at, at particular important historical times has has come out at the right time. Uh, I think in particular, probably his finest moment was um, him standing up uh, consistently being a campaigner against uh, the blockade on Iraq, uh, the war against Iraq, the first war, the 
the first and second wars against Iraq, the blockade and Iraq. He, 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 you know, there's no questioning his his anti-imperialist sort of you know credentials. I think. However, having said that, the the guy has been proven a number of times to have an ego the size of the planet. Um, there was an interesting historical footnote. Um, Blairism did create a, a crisis for the left, and there was an opportunity. I would argue. Uh, back in the late 90s, early thousands, there was a, uh, an alignment, if you like. There was an opportunity for um, some interesting developments electorally. The, it was a, there was a mob called RESPECT, which was basically an acronym for a number of things, which brought together um, people from far-left groupings and dissident Labor people and the like in terms of a new thing. Um, sadly, it failed, and, and, and Galloway really was one of those driving forces of, of it failing because it was really about my way or the highway with Galloway. Um, I'll never forgive him for that. But um, that, that little experiment, at the very least, did actually help hone people, um, socialists, um, who had a bit more of a broader perspective to say, look, let's get back in. Uh, let's, let's go into labour and, um, and start a, a new project. And I think Momentum, um, which, which ended up taking a, having a key role in Jeremy Corbyn's election, in there was a, one of those things that, that was a, something that inherited from that process. So weirdly enough, we, we kind of, in some ways, have some things to thank Galloway for, but uh, it's kind of like, thanks, but your time's gone, um, buddy, you know, jog on, I reckon. Um, and, you know, so that's that's why what I, I just, you know, people don't know much about him um, here. That's sort of my take about mm. where he's come from. The the stuff today, though, like, I mean, the parallels, people, some people might say, well, this happened in 2017, 2008. It's like, well, it's not the point. We, the, as good um, time-serving people uh, that can find themselves, sadly, in organisations that may have lacked some sort of, you know, um, transparent process enough to weed this sort of you know rotten behavior out which is obviously what's happening uk labor um they went on to do to uh, do more damage if you like um two of two of the main uh, movers and shakers ended up being part of that uh, people's vote campaign which did a wonderful job and uh, really um, hamstringing labor in terms of having a, a coherent position on um, brexit and we know that fundamentally it was something that really did cost labor the election in the end was um, their, their position, uh, but uh, they were involved in that. And we also have this uh, Amelia uh, Oldno um, character. Emily Oldno. <laughs> Who, Emily Oldno. Uh, she's, she's still currently the Assistant National Secretary of Unison, which for people in Australia, it's kind of like a um, hybrid union, kind of like would be like partly community public sector union and health services union uh, as one big, you know, big union except sort of you know, doing the hospitals and, and um, local government type stuff, I guess, would one be the way to think about it. But they, there is still in key positions in, in the in the labour, you know, in the broad labour movement, progressive movement. So I, I hope that this, um, I hope this is at the very least, if there's any justice in this world, that they will no longer have those sort of roles. Um, yeah. You know, that's, that's, if there is any justice, that would be that. But um, I do note rather, rather very sadly that Old Now has written to Navarra Media and is threatening all sorts of legal um, <laughs> action and all the rest of it. Yeah. Um, you know, but I mean, we shouldn't be surprised that you know, people like that don't have enough integrity to actually say, okay, fair cop, been fined out, I apologise. You know, like they, they really should be um, contacting people they said all those horrible things about. Um, 
for example. But I don't know. I mean, it's not just the tit for tat stuff. I think it's the key thing is that that type of behaviour cost them the election. Um, yeah. Factionalism above actually uh, tried to to win when we know that the ultimate outcome was to um, you know win a Labor government. Um, and it happened twice. I mean, yeah. there's no there is not direct evidence that um, at any point these the parties to this sort of conspiracy uh were intentionally sitting on uh the processing of racism complaints in order to damage jeremy corbyn however their obsession with um purging the left of the party and um screening for example screening uh new membership applications based on people's twitter accounts and um denying people's applications yeah. because they had liked tweets from by the green party you know uh let alone yeah. you know um revolutionary socialist sentiment uh no it sounds like joining new south wales labor you know well like, no you, yeah you don't send your money no, and yeah you'll never a, hear from them yeah, again other than them taking right. the cash out of your account yeah. this is kind of like paranoid project of um of like eradicating leftists um has had the result that anti-semitic mm-hmm. complaints have gone undealt with right and yep. so does this put the nail in the coffin of the um, anti-Semitism scandal? I mean, obviously, this report will have to be submitted to the EHRC uh, now that it's been made public, I imagine. And there's, I think there's word that um, the party executive intended on not submitting it to the EHRC, which may have been why it was leaked. What, what seems to be reported is that, um, is that lawyers um, advised uh, Starmer um, to not um, submit that that addendum um, as part of their submission to the AHRC. Um, that's um, that's an anecdote. We don't know if that's mm. true or not, but that seems to be what's what's being reported. Um, I don't think it is um, the nail in the coffin of um, the anti-Semitism issue inside the Labor Party. I think it's what is clear out of the report is that. Um, for people who who are hoping that this would, um, I guess, um, give people off the hook that there was no anti-Semitism going on in the Labor Party is not true. Like it is yeah. clear that there were some serious, significant cases of alleged anti-Semitism going on inside the UK Labor Party. Um, so that is that seems to be the case, and I think it would be wrong for people to to conflate. Um, the factional misuse of those complaints with the validity of those complaints. Uh, but I think that's that's something we have to be very careful on 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 dealing is that there are um, one of the unfortunate aspects of the report being leaked as opposed to the report being handled properly by the party is that it's it, it, there, there seem to be copies getting around that are unredacted um, and that that basically name um, people with legitimate um, concerns and complaints who could very well now be um, targets uh, from the far right um, and, and others. Um, and I think that's it. That's, I think, I think it's right for the, for Starmer and Rayner to have called for a, um, a review into an investigation into um, the, the allegations made into the report and to the leaking, not, not to necessarily, um, find the, the, the leaker and, and punish them, so to speak, but to, as, as, as an organisation, the Labor Party has an obligation to ensure that 
documents of that nature don't get leaked uh, and don't get released in in a way that is insensitive um, and in ways that that jeopardise um, people's um, uh, claims and 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 cases um, um, which they they may want to see um, you know dealt with um, in in a in a way that has integrity. So uh, I think that is actually quite sensible for them. Um, it has come out that they have had that report for at least a week before it was leaked. So um, you do have to, um, I think questions should be asked about what were their plans for the report? What did they want to, like, what were they dealing with? It is interesting um, in some of the reports um, that, and, and some of the articles that Ben has mentioned that um, were the candidate, were the people being lined up um, to take senior roles in the party under Starmer, um, who seem to have been implicated in this in this report? Were they out of the picture now or in that period, or is it only now that this has been leaked that they're out of the picture? Um, I think that would be interesting to know. We'll probably never find that out. Um, mm. But I think it's 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 important to to um, you know this is why I think um, it's important to get to the bottom of, of it. Mm. Yeah, I, I, it, that just reminded me of something. Like the, the other thing I found interesting about because I was reminded of there is that whole like just just sad stuff. I, I know one of the reports. I know Navarro is talking about people that who'd raise complaints uh, about anti anti cement behaviour towards um, them in party forums or whatever, waiting two years for you know some sort of process to actually deal with it, mm. and not just that, I mean, that's shocking, but, but the other flip side of that is we actually saw the, when people talk about weaponization now, some, sometimes um, some people in the left, let alone or, or, or our, our political opponents, if you like, or whatever shade they were, um, they love using uh, the, the language of identity or, or, or the like to try to weaponize you know, certain things. Yeah. It, I was reminded to, man, you might remember that, the guy up, uh, Matt, uh, what's his name? Was it Saab Cousin? Not, yeah, not that bloke. Mm. Um, there's a. Can you remember the name of the guy? Is the the other? He's offsider. Used to be on uh, that show, All the Best. You ever listen to that? Ah, uh, yes. Um, um, yes, yes. I know who you're talking the, it about. It was a. But that guy, basically, this this Max guy, young, Max Shanley. It was like a former National Union of Students, sort of, you know, big big wig. Yeah, he was had more, you know key roles in, in, in stuff in the past. But he was put up on anti-Semitic charges of being anti-Semitic. He was put through the ringer. He was stood down. And his whole life was, you know, being a full-on activist and, paid, you know, he, he was really dealt terrible. They, they could deal with him. And, you know, it was found in the end, no great surprise that there was nothing untoward, nothing, was, uh, nothing to see here. But he went through some horrible stuff with that. Whereas there they were sitting on these other complaints that took two years for anything to happen. So uh, the, just thinking of those, those cases that also happened historically, you know, after that time, around that time, things like that. Like, there are all sorts of pretty interesting, um, you know, choices of which, which cases they went and looked into, which allegations they, the, the, the party or office was going to look into and why I can't. Justice was definitely not being blind there and very incredibly selective as to who they're going to go and uh, ask questions of. But there, there's that. Um, I don't know, man. I just, I guess we try in Australia to, and I know in ACT we tried very hard to bring in a 
I guess what a, a code of conduct, if you like, or you know, different rules and things like that, and to sort of you know try to um, help um, encourage the best sort of behaviour and processes there for when when people don't behave, you know, appropriately. But um, yeah, I, I don't know what you think, Matt. But is it possible to, <laughs> when we're dealing with politics? Obviously, people are going to have political arguments and disagreements. Is it possible to have political arguments and disagreements without it getting ugly? Like, is it, is it, you know, getting ugly? Is that inevitable? Like, is this just the part of politics that we have to accept that, you know, if one group gets in a position of power, so therefore they can go and abuse it. Um, should we accept that or, you know, I don't know. What, what, are, you, what are your thoughts on that? I think that's a, that's a really great uh, question, Ben, I think. Um, and I think it goes to the heart of um, some of the arguments that are being made to people as to why they need to give up on on the Labor yep. Party and go and do something else, right? Because it's a waste yep. of time and whatever. Time. I think that that is a a um, iobocracy, but a, a form of politics that is basically um, uh, informed by social movement politics um, or um, kind of what I have to call kind of cosplay style uh, revolutionary politics, which actually don't engage in any material politics whatsoever. Uh, party politics is very different. Um, you know, the the fight to um, to to wield power, to gain power inside a political party, is fundamentally different to that exercised in 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 most other forms of, of political organisations, because political parties are fundamentally vehicles which get to wield um, the most political power in our, in our parliamentary system. So people who, who, who gain power and exercise power are not going to give up that power easily at all. Um, so the idea that you can go in and exercise, um, you know, that you can participate in a party, if you want to be at the top of a political party, you need to win votes, basically. You need to gain support and you need to... Um, with enough votes so that you or your supporters or people who who, who share your, your worldview can exercise that power and influence in the party. Um, and I think it's, it's woefully naive for people to think that um, that the people who currently have the power are going to give that up um, without any kind of a, a fight. So, yes, sadly, things are uh, do get weaponised and get abused. But that goes to a question of culture. Can a party build a strong enough culture to ensure that when these are when these fights do occur or these contestations and and, and attempts at at power being um, taken or shared or or the like, can the party still maintain focus uh, and still um, and still be um, you know directed at its main aim, which is to take parliamentary power on behalf of the the, the section of society who it represents. You know, and that means winning election campaigns. Um, in the United in the UK, clearly that's not the case. Um, mm. Clearly, they failed that. Um, not only did they fail that, but it looks like the people actually decided to um, to lose an election or try to lose an election in order to maintain factional control of their party. Um, that obviously means that that at, during that period, the party was broken. Um, now, obviously, since then. New um, officials have taken over, and uh, NEC has changed a couple of times since then. So, um, you know, you can't say that this is the Labor Party right now as it is. So, again, those calling for people to quit the party are wrong because that's actually not what the party looks like right now. Mm. Um, it's what the party clearly looked like a couple of years ago. Um, 
you know, but it's it's wrong to say that that's what the party um, looks like um, now. And I think it's good that these people, career prospects of the party, have now jeopardised. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think we're, you know, I think there's there's reasons to to be hopeful, but don't give up on that. Uh, the fight is hard. It's tough. People are going to wield all kinds of shit on you. Um, you know, I've experienced something myself as an official, uh, former official in the party, uh, but you can't lose sight of the bigger picture. Um, I think that, it, like, um, there's a temptation for people who are despairing and kind of thinking about um, abandoning the party. It comes out of a kind of thinking that thinks that these kinds of co- toxic cultures are constituted structurally, right? And it's mm-hmm. kind of like a an anarchist conception of the effects of party hu- party or institutional hierarchy on um, you know individual or social psychology but I think it's really important to remember that cultures are really constituted historically right and that that particularly you know like um, that toxic culture was kind of a defensive posture for those people because the history, the historical constitution of that culture is that, you know, those people were hired under new labor into their jobs. They entered the party under new labor, most of them, uh, which itself was a defensive posture, like taken, you know, um, in, as a response to the kind of like uh, all encompassing hegemony of neoliberalism in politics. And that, after events like the Iraq war and the global financial crisis, public trust in the institutions like traditional media, financial institutions, which were a pretty big sector of society that was like crucial to new labor's success, like that public trust has completely collapsed. And it's opened this, it opened this moment where uh, organizations like Momentum we're able to offer this alternative, right? Uh, an uh, internal alternative in organizing, uh, in fundraising and in outreach, right? There's like a revival of grassroots campaigning that kind of rose up both, I think, in the wake of, but also directly as a kind of dialectical response to new labor, right? So I think that like kind of counter motion to the tendencies of neoliberalism was like always always going to move from the bottom up right and so what that created uh, and this is i'm getting to like how this this kind of like toxic culture is constituted is it 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 sort of made the conditions for the class divide in the party between it's sort of the elites the professional managerial class elites who are the sort of professional party staffers and the your rank and file membership particularly, but also kind of your dedicated lower rung of um, volunteers and communicators. An ideological divide becomes more and more stark between those groups. And then you have um, the success of Corbyn and his supporters really representing the consolidation of that shift such that a Corbyn-led Labour victory in 2017 really would have meant the challenging of those, these people's place in the party, right? Um, it challenges their place as uh, organisers, um, as kind of gatekeepers to the media um, through, you know, earned, earned coverage from media symbiotes. 
um, through the rise of you know, alternative left media. Yeah, and, this, and so I guess like the fight for re, uh, mandatory reselection, for example, is like a big part of that. Yeah, there's, there's, yeah, you're right. There's lots of yeah. material reasons why yeah. those people behave right. the That's way right. they did. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I know you, you've touched on it before, Matt, and we were talk, you were mentioning um, uh, the whole point about people really need to stay. But I, but I think uh, one thing I might sort of add in terms of like um, people listening to this locally or, or the like, like the reality is if we want to ensure that that type of behaviour or behaviour that people who are already involved in the party may have seen in recent years and not been happy with, right? Or, you know, um, the only way to stop that is to create the culture yourself. And that's why um, you need to be engaged. You need to turn up where you can and the like. Um, but you also need to organise and you, ideally people who aren't involved in an organisation, say uninvolved in labour um, because they're paid to be there, right? Um, they really need to get together. To, to they're, they're part of ensuring that the organisation they belong to also represents their interests, yeah? Um, yep. My take has always been Look, yes, agree with you know union um, union affiliation. You know, I'm a, I'm a unionist. Always have been. It's a cool thing to be a socialist unionist. Um, but if you don't, if the rank and file membership, uh, man, through whoever structurally is unable to attend meetings or attend events and all the like, um, that's one thing that limits their participation. But if you're not, if, if the rank and file membership isn't participating, this is when you get the people who are paid to be there dominate. And they can't but conservatise it. So as much as there are some lovely people who are staffers for various MLAs or politicians or work for unions, um, might be good people, you know, might you know have goodness in their heart. Plenty of them don't too. Let's not forget that. But they're unfortunately, structurally, their interest is more in the more conservative um, sort of outcome because they're materially tied up. It's about their wage. Yeah? Um, whereas that's that's always going to be a break on them whereas people are involved in a, over a set of ideas that are actually going to benefit them in you know for their communities in terms of changing laws so i know say for example uh getting hard rubbish pickup is something we got in in the act from uh pushes by rank of file members that only happens because people turn up yeah um i don't know those have always been that that tension there is the thing uh, but I keep really one of the key that the real difference and the, the I guess the real headbang thing is always going to be unless you've got rank and file people who are organised and have got friends who are part of that um, pay to be there part you know got connections there you uh, are going to continue to have this sort of weird bunch of technocrats well-meaning technocrats but you know at the end of the day liberals trying to tell other people how they live their lives because they've got uh, you know our best interests at heart yeah look i i agree with that but i think i think you know fundamentally um party membership isn't about isn't about turning up to meetings it's about organizing um on issues or or causes that you want to see um a labor government implement um and that means a combination of um agitating on on policy and principle, but also accountability. And if our candidates don't um, ultimately, um, if they they walk too far away from that, then they can be replaced. And I think we're very lucky in the ACT to have a genuine rack and file uh, democracy. Um, 
in a way that doesn't exist in, in just about any other branch of the party uh, and certainly doesn't seem to exist in uh, the UK Labor Party, um, who still has their kind of list and, and, um, and CLP trigger model. So um, I think that that's, you know, there's, there's lots of reasons for members to, to stay. I, I, um, this might be slight tangent, but I listened to a, um, a podcast from Trash Future um, the other day where they were talking about the report and um, a number of there, they have like five or six people on a, on a pot at any given time and, and most of their contributors all decided that the Labor Party was too hard and meetings were boring and um, their, their time was wasted. And I think for me, that's a, like they've fundamentally missed the point of party membership. They've missed, I think they missed the point, which is that it's actually about, as you say, getting together with like-minded members and organising inside the structures of the party to, to achieve outcomes, um, just as the right or the moderates do um, themselves. You know, their theory of change, to use social movement term, is to take control and marginalise opposition, you know, so they can keep it. Um, to basically cartelize the, the, the party, whereas the, the left theory of change is to build, recruit, organize, mm. to educate existing members to build support and to recruit new ones into the party in order to build support um, and therefore create a, a, um, a hegemonic kind of view of a progressive or left wing um, you know, worldview inside a party. Um, it, it always strikes me odd about the, the kind of political elite class versus the, the rank and file um, uh, divert class. Interesting. I, I'm not so sure about that because I think ultimately we all want to win elections. And if we can, um, if we can uh, fight for policies and, and, and a platform and, and select candidates who are going to relate best to the electorate, then we're going to win elections, um, which keeps these people employed. Um, mm. And I, I don't think there is necessarily that that bigger difference, or there shouldn't be that bigger difference. I think you get a, a um, uh, I think what we're actually seeing more of a, a an ideological difference, um, more so than an elite versus a member difference. Um, I, I think that's actually the bigger divide that you have staffers or or officials who are ideologically um, who are ideologically liberal. Um, and who or, or right wing who don't believe in in um, uh, even a vaguely social democratic uh, worldview, and so they will use the power they have to marginalise um, progressive or left wing forces. I think it's a, a quote that's become popular out of this report: "Is there anyone to the left of Gordon Brown to trot?" Um, which seemingly included, <laughs> you know, Ed Miliband. Um, you know, like it's incredible, yeah, right? Yeah, like yeah, it's it's yeah, just no. incredible. Um, you know, I think that would basically um, yeah. That would basically uh, imply that just about every member of the ACT Labor Party, apart from a few notable exceptions, would be considered a trot. Um, and I, I just don't think that that um, that that's a um, that's that's just a ridiculous uh, narrow ideological casting of what's acceptable in a modern social democratic party. Met people in the New South Wales right, and uh, that they seem to think we're all trots as well. But you know. Uh, it is, it is ridiculous stuff. And look, for people who don't understand this trot term, like uh, Trotskyist, and it's, it really is an historical term. It was uh, a label that was play, um, placed um, kind of like by self-identity, but also by their political opponents uh, on revolutionary organisations that emerged out of 
the defeat of the Russian Revolution. And they were people who um, had sympathy or actively supported the political theories uh, and strategies of the re revolutionary Leon Trotsky. Now, in the modern context, it's just um, not really relevant. It's just red baiting. Um, I just think people should just, if you disagree with someone's politics, well, mm. you disagree. You know, that's, that's it. You call it out on that basis. But, mm. um, you know, Trotskyism is actually part of an historical political view of, um, you know, interventions about a politics from a long time ago. Uh, even though there's hardly anyone today would actually even self-identify as, as, as a Trotskyist. Anyone under the age yeah, of 45 using that term doesn't know what they're actually saying. Yeah, what, yeah they know what, what they're talking about. And I've had, you know, it's a young people sort of throwing this trot term around. It just really makes me almost want to reach for a bottle, you know, like, you know, seriously. It's just offensive, you know. If the, if the term, which seems to, like, un, like, you know, this understanding of their political enemies as trots seems to, like, be quite central to their um hostility right if the term is yeah. so inapplicable matt like doesn't that suggest that it's really an empty signifier that is being used uh to kind of designate in groups and out groups and that ultimately yeah. it suggests to me that the ideological underpinning of their um project is like very very thin basically if you know the language that they're using is you know decades and decades outdated and they don't seem to be able to make a distinction between uh, Ed Miliband and Jeremy Corbyn, why should we assume that there's a serious ideological difference driving their hostility? Uh, well, I don't, I don't think it, it, it shows that it's empty. I just think it shows that it's dated. Um, mm. I think that they, what they've done is effectively adopted uncritically a, a ideological worldview um, that was formed in the the 80s and the 90s and i think that's where um they're comfortable and where um they they still live you know basically they are uh they seem to be nothing more than a malcolm tucker appreciation society um you know and, and i think that 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 uh, you know, uh characters you know were based on the the tony blair years and, and tony blair's office um some of whom are still quite active on twitter um you know, basically, their their worldview is is a is a conservative liberal, um, you know, neoliberal worldview with a safety net. Um, you know, the third way is social democracy, so called, um, when really it's just a a form of kind of compassionate liberalism um, with you know, a kind of penchant for warfare. Um, you know, I think that's that is their ideological worldview. It is a thin gruel worldview now because the the UK and and the world. The, has gone through the global financial crisis. Um, we have a, a, a giant kind of climate crisis around the corner. We're currently going through the coronavirus crisis. So um, it's been shown that that worldview is, is, is not effective at dealing with those crises, but it's still there. That's still what shapes their, their worldview. Um, it might be a passive exercise or, 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 or use of it, but I think that's still the ideological mm. underpinnings of their worldview. Yes, they, they practice politics in a, in a power-hungry, um, pointed way. Um, so do many people on the right inside our party. Um, so do some people in the left in our party. Um, but the exercise of power is different to, I think, their, their ideological worldview. I mean, there's plenty of um, left-wing staffers and left-wing union officials who, who we would consider good socialists um, who, might, who have a material interest in, in protecting their... Their, their job by being successful um, 
I don't think that's I don't think that's the driving force. I think it, winning I, they could have won the election in 2015. Sorry, in 2017 they could have won the election. Yeah. Um, and um, that would have been materially more beneficial for them because they would have um, had access to to government roles, um, to you know ministerial offices. Um, the the first Corbyn cabinet had uh, right wingers in it. Uh, you know, there's no reason to say that people like them couldn't have gone on, you know, and benefited materially from uh, from a Labor government uh, led by mm. Corbyn. So I don't I don't buy that that is the the defining um, fault line in this. I do think that it is a um, their anti-socialism is is defined by a, uh, a a very narrow and thin interpretation of of um, of, of basically a right wing form of third way social democracy. For one of a an yeah. elegant way of putting it, yeah. I was actually I was thinking of um, something I heard. I, I know it was a it was an Aaron Aaron Bastani thing uh, from the Vara Media, and he was talking about uh, the last uh, hook of the establishment. So in Britain, they they talk a lot about the establishment, and the establishment is basically a, a, a I don't know kind of uh, the last train about a ruling class. Yes, yeah. yes. It's a Tony Ben quote. Uh, yeah. yeah, it was a Tony Ben quote, was it? Well, even better. So, I think so. Um, yeah, and, and I think it's... it's Ralph Miller, Yeah, it, it, in many ways, it's kind of like this, this thing that has blown up really has to kind of expose that. Um, but the thing about exposing that there are function, you know, there are, you know, movers and shakers for the status quo, right, for you know, no serious change, actively fighting. <laughs> there they are in a, in a party based on trying to change things for the benefit for ordinary people who then do everything they can to destroy those chances. Like, you don't get any more black and white than that in terms of, like, you know, doing the, the ultimately the material interest of the establishment or the ruling class, if you like. However, it's not like it's not a conspiracy. It's it's around the ideas. So that goes back to, I guess, one of the things we want to try to keep uh, encouraging all the all people to consider. It's uh, ideas are what shape what happens and being involved and engaged is, is what shapes what happens and determining what you want to see happen in the world is something you have an opportunity to do with organising with people who agree with you. And, you know, um, that's the whole uh cause of, of, of socialism is about um, having people and more people rather the radical democracy bit uh, involved in making decision makings whereas our opponents are very much the opposite and um, even people I suppose they're left wing you know they really prefer things to be a lot tighter and more controlled and you know that, that sort of stuff you know they don't want to be irresponsible and things like that they're you know according to them they're making the decisions so um, I think there's something that always sort of come back to is about, I don't know, I mean, that's what I think. I know it's probably, you know, I'll put voices, but, you know, I think you guys probably agree with me. It's participation, engagement, democracy are, the, are sort of the key things to ensure that um, that uh, people acting in the interests of the establishment or the ruling class, if you like, um, don't get away with it. You've got to be involved and uh, helping change it. And I think we've, we've talked about this in the past, Jacob, but the fact that electoral politics in this country, political party involvement is so small, is actually really scary how easy it is for some people to find themselves in positions of power. Uh, uh, the difference, at least in some parts of the Labor Party around the country, is some of them at least mass organisations that you can 
um, organise around the SER representative. But um, you know, we we do have that great example under Matt's leadership in Canberra. We went, we got up to one in one hundred electors or members of the ALP. Like that's pretty incredible. Uh, but we we can be dead certain that's not the case in many other states or territories um, of how how it's uh, run. So. Um, I'd be saying uh, for our listeners, you know, listening to Doe Capital, Class Politics from Canberra. We have been mucking around with this this podcast uh, for, well, I don't know, two and a bit weeks now. Um, is we encourage you to get involved and that uh, there are no, um, you, there doesn't have to be a special club for jerks that you, you have to join. Like you can be involved as much as you want and we encourage you to be involved. Yeah, you, um, like, well, I will say like on that, one thing that I, was worried about when I uh, first got involved in political participation was uh, this kind of um, dread of some kind of give yourself to Jesus moment where I was going to have to stand up in front of a bunch of people and and say, oh, my you know, and it happened, did it? You go to a oh, faction meeting. Oh, it was said, fine. It never happened. And I was all right. Oh, I know. It's Jacob. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I closed my eyes and I put my, my hands up in the air and, you know, I let the spirit of um, Bellamy wash over me. <laughs> well, that on the hill touched you. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> In an appropriate way. Yes, yes, yeah, yes, yeah. Yes. Look, I think it's it's important that we that we keep defending the role of, of mass participation in 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 party politics. Um, and and you know, I, obviously, I'm. It would be. Hip- hypocritical of me not to to make that argument as someone who's been involved in in the Labor Party now for, for more than 10 years and, and um, who, who worked and was an elected official in, in the party for 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 um, just under a decade so you know I think that's that's certainly um, that's certainly something that I won't ever resolve from um, in saying that though I think that, that we as a left do need to have a more serious discussion about um, the broader you know, state of of the left in in, in Australia, um, our lack of institutions, um, our lack of um, power um, in the trade union movement, the marginalisation of that movement, which is still the most viable vehicle for changing in in Australia at the moment, um, and and also the, the Labor Party and the and the Green Party's relationship with with that. Um, I think the fundamental questions that we have to to um, to investigate, I think, in the in the, in the coming years, are are what um, institutions exist or or what can we build to build working class power um, in Australia? Because I think that is really the only way we're going to um, to make vehicles like the well, make organisations like the Australian Labor Party more effective. Yeah. On that note, Please. I think uh, yeah. is there anything else you got there, Ben? Or? No, no, there's nice, nice, nice little yeah. end there from yeah. Comrade Matt. Yeah, yep, no, All that'd be right. good. Huge thanks to Matt Byrne for joining us from Belgium. Um, this has been kind of a long episode. Um, hopefully, we can get it down to sub 90 minutes. We'll see. Um, <laughs> and uh, we got anything to plug, Matt? It's been nice. Have you anything no, to no, plug, yeah. Matt? I don't, but I actually would, if you want to read about the economic uh, um, disaster that's kind of unfolding as we speak, it's probably worth reading uh, James Meadway, um, who's on a number of places, but also uh, Adam Tooze, uh, who writes for the Washington Post, uh, economic historian. I think they are good places to start and uh, have a think about um, what the hell is going on at the moment.